0: Please remember, the information in our podcast could be a trigger for some people. And if you or someone you know has been affected by sexual abuse, the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre 24-hour helpline is one 800 77 Hello, I'm
1: Joyce. I'm June.
0: And I'm Paula. We're the Cabinet Sisters. And we'd like to welcome you to our series of Count Me podcasts where we continue to shine a light on childhood sexual abuse and its impacts. In today's podcast, we'll be talking to Maeve Lewis, CEO of One & Four, a charitable organisation dedicated to supporting adult survivors of childhood sexual abuse. It founded in 2003 and located at 2 Hollis Street, Dublin 2 and the phone number is 01 662 4070. Maeve is a proud Tipperary woman and is the recipient of the University of Limerick's 2019 Alumni Award for Outstanding Contribution to Society. The university also acknowledged Maeve's international work in post-conflict situations and her contribution to the International Criminal Court as an expert witness in sexual trauma. We will be including a link at the end of this post, which will include Maeve's extensive credentials.
2: We don't have all day, you yeah. <laughs>
0: We'll just kick off by asking Maeve to give us just a broad description of the organisation. I'll just give you the opportunity to
3: just explain yourself. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thanks June. Um, well, 1 in 4 works with adult survivors of child sexual abuse men and women. About half our clients are men and people often don't appreciate really? that. Really? Brilliant. Yeah? Um, we also work with the families who have been impacted by sexual abuse and we also have a prevention program where we work with people who have caused sexual harm to children. For survivors of abuse we have a number of programs. So our advocacy program is there to help people who want to get involved in the criminal justice system or who want to make um, notifications to the child and family agency um, about concerns they might have with children. The advocacy team support about 600 people a year and almost every year now about 35 of those people would end up in a criminal trial which can be very daunting and harrowing. So. The accompaniment service we offer is great that's, support. That's people. quite a
2: high number considering how few cases are ever brought like nationally. Yeah, yeah
3: it is and we found year on year that the number of people who were willing to go to the Gardaí in the first instance and then go right through the whole process that that number is growing. We don't know why but I think maybe people you know they, they see other people. In that's court. it, people are getting braver. People are just getting braver if you go to a criminal trial you are entitled to anonymity so that your name will never be published but a lot of people waive that right now that's right and they speak openly to the media and i think that encourages a lot that's of other right. people to come See? forward now there are other people for various reasons who absolutely do not want to be named and in fact the fear of being named i think stops some people from right, yeah. coming forward and it's very hard because you know outside of dublin in like i'm from Tiberi, If there is a rape case in Nina, everybody knows who's involved. So it's very difficult to maintain being anonymous. Like we saw in the papers just the other day of that case down in Leitrim, where two guys were convicted of raping that's a girl right. they'd been at school with, but in the courtroom, some of their family stood up and said, "We'll get you back." Uh, a trender, and You know, the yeah, liar. Yeah. That was after they'd been convicted, so that's very difficult. I think, yeah. especially for people who come from small communities. But it was really well
0: highlighted, and there was an arrest, wasn't there? There a was PMS. an arrest, and the Gardaí are investigating. There's been action taken. and yes. so it wasn't just something you have to put up with. No, no, no. 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 So that's a good thing. Yeah, that's progress. Is. Yeah.
3: They're taking it a bit more seriously. Oh, I think so, I think so. And the guards, in fairness, have set up units all over the country where detectives are specially trained to investigate these very sensitive and and difficult cases. And that I think is going to make a big difference to how people are received if they walk into a guard station and want to make a complaint. Yeah, we find that with our clients, if somebody wants to make a complaint to the guardie, that's always their own choice, that the guards will actually come in here to one and four and meet them here, so they don't have to go into, Brilliant. you yeah. know, a police station. You know no, with it's good.
2: the with mandatory reporting. Mm. And, so if a client comes to you and they're starting to receive treatment and you're mandatory
3: responsible for reporting that
2: how do you how do you work around What's your policy the, on that
3: the difficulties uh, i mean Tusla have a new policy out so we've changed our policy in the past we used to really encourage people to give us the name of the person who abused them we saw that as really important to protect other children but tusla have changed their policy uh, which we are strongly fighting so nowadays if somebody doesn't want to give us the name that's absolutely fine we don't have to make that mandatory. Report. That's brilliant. Yeah. Now, what we find is that even though people don't have to tell us, very often as they progress through counselling, they will they, they change their minds yeah. and they begin to realise look at this, was not my fault, That's this it. Is not my responsibility. I am worried maybe that he's still abusing other children. The guidelines mm. you're talking about is a recent crack that's come out. Uh, I, well, I'm fine with that. <laughs> <laughs> they they
2: want a stress test the victim statement in front of the, the abuser, so that he has the right to ask him questions Well, I tell you, senses.
3: it would be over my dead body good any of our good clients ever, ever sit in a room with the person who good is there. That is just not- We
0: can't even comprehend. How old were we when Dad went six. to court? I was 26. I couldn't even look him in the eye. Like, I thought we were courageous, we were in the court now. This was time for us to stand into our own bodies and take back our power. It's still, in my mind, he still had all the power. I ended up having to look away. And hating myself feeling weak and you know and i was thinking my god imagine him having the right
3: to put questions to me in a room and that's no, so that's wrong. exactly it and at least in a court of law there is very strict procedures and guidelines and so on um yes you do have to go into court and yes the offender will be there but i mean the idea that a social worker would bring one of our clients face to face with the offender and we all know how manipulative offenders are how the dynamic of power will get played out
2: the fact that they've said they're already implementing this as in they're already got social workers in training to implement this that's coming in in july how can we stop it
3: well we're working very hard with some of the other support bodies like one of the other things they're saying they have to do is to pass all information directly on to the offender So. You know, we've got legal advice from expert lawyers um, who are, really understand data protection and that is completely at odds with the data protection legislation. Mm. So we are undertaking campaign. So so who even thought about this as uh, protecting their rights? And there's been a whole load of High Court decisions which said that Tusla and before them the HSC didn't offer fair procedures. Part of that is they must know what the complaint is and who's made the complaint. but. You know it is absolute nonsense
1: if you decide you're going to make a guard statement do you have to charge or can you do that and ask them to keep
3: on file in the filing cabinet until you decide a lot of our clients will have a conversation with a member of the guards and then have a think about it and make a decision it's not until you make a formal statement that an investigation is going to begin so that that is a possibility here
1: Well at the no. moment, you know, I'm just based on our case. When we made our statement, it was given automatically to Damn. him. And when he made his statement We never saw We'd never seen it.
3: It was pure accident that we actually had access to it. The
1: t- is that the norm? Still.
3: Right. Because uh, I mean to he, know. he is I mean look well in fairness, if somebody yeah. made an accusation against me you want to know. I what would want is. to know what the accusation yeah, was. Yeah, but because I was, not go to you and say, Listen,
1: he, Maeve Paul has just accused you of raping her when she was three to seven, is that not enough information?
3: No, because, you know, if you're going down the criminal justice route, there's very strict rules about evidence and disclosure and so on. Now, what has happened, and it it, it tightens things up, is that in the past, um, say if one of our clients was going to trial, the guards would contact us, they'd ask for counselling notes, they'd ask for all these things and with the client's permission to be handed over. That doesn't happen anymore. It's the Director of Public Prosecutions, the DPP, who requests the counselling notes. They may redact some of the stuff out of the notes, and they are given to the legal team of the accused person with very strong provisos that they mustn't be copied, they mustn't be shared with any other people. Like in the past, we had situations where the abuser got all that information and was sharing it all around these friends and family and whatever, that can't happen anymore. And once the trial is over, regardless of what's happened, those notes have to be returned to the DPP and um, I think they're kept on file there. So there is some safeguarding for a person, but I mean, if you get involved in a criminal trial, you have to know that any, your, your statement and any other information like counselling notes can be made available. I
2: think that's, that's beyond sickening and- because surely the idea of counselling and the point of counselling is you go in somewhere safe and
3: you're allowed to tell your whole story knowing that it's between you and your counsellor. Yeah, I mean it's a choice people have to make because some of our clients when they realise that counselling notes for example could be used decide they're not going to go ahead with the case. There is a new provision um, in the new Sex Offences Act since 2017 that it's possible for the uh, complainant to go into court and to get independent legal representation before the judge to request that those notes would not be used and then the judge will read the notes and decide whether they can be used or not be used or part of them used or whatever. So that's some small protection.
2: When I think of the things I would have said in council about other people that I wasn't even bringing charges against. I. I just can't tell you the damage that would have done to me. Well, yeah, if, if, if have forget, wouldn't have been that would That would
3: be redacted if there's third parties mentioned in any counselling right. notes, that's redacted.
2: And so, do you, does
3: the does the victim themselves have access to those files? To, that, the, to the notes. You know, their notes, their own. Oh, absolutely. And because so many of our clients end up going to court, our therapists here take three line counselling notes. Oh, ah, right. June came ah, today right. and she spoke about her father that's it. Right. There's ways, around There's it, ways yeah. to play the right. There's ways to play the system. And and I, I would, would have to, access to it before, that would oh, we would. Anyway. If, if somebody was, was um, if a case was going to court, we would always invite the client in to read the notes and they can make a decision you then. See, that's a bit of reassurance. Right. right? Yeah. no, yeah. we'd always see the notes. In fact, if you're in counselling, you were always entitled to us to see whatever notes we kept I about you. No, but I remember we it's, weren't even on that level. It's but, but now, with the introduction of it,
0: Possibly going to a third party now would be a bit more keen to have it. To have but a not look only that,
2: knowing that, that even having that information out there and available to you is very because then this is not the type of thing that people who in a crisis who ring up and say, I really need help, would be thinking of. No, we didn't even know we had a right to say, Actually, I'm not clicking with this therapist, can I have a different one?
3: We didn't know we had that Honestly, right. That is so important, yeah, you know, it is so important. And some people want to prefer to see a woman, and some people prefer to see a man. So, if at all possible people really have the right to ask for that. Right, well, that's very good. Yeah. It's, it's just
0: with, with those notes, it does feel like the victims' no, uh, rights are being impinged on. I know? mean,
3: in the past, everything was stacked in favour of the accused person. That's in the Irish Constitution. And of course, we all would want the right to a fair trial and all that. Things are changing, though. There is an EU directive now on the rights of victims of crime. There's a new Victims of Crime Act here in this country. So slowly and surely, the people who have the courage to go forward and get involved in the criminal justice system, have more protections than they they used to have. There's a kind of a mindset now that recognises people who have been sexually abused are very vulnerable, going into court is really harrowing, re-traumatising, so there are efforts, not enough mind you, but there are efforts there to try and make that experience uh, somewhat easier for the the person who comes forward.
2: Are the people in here, as a centre who is providing treatment and support for people, do you ever get asked in an, in an Irish court to go in and give evidence on victim behavior or v- how people store memories or how they recall a, an incident or perpetrator's behavior.
3: Irish criminal courts don't in sexual crimes anyway don't ask for expert witnesses whereas I mean you mentioned yeah I've been over to done. the International Criminal Court yeah um, as an expert witness and they do listen to experts talking about trauma and sexual violence and the impact and how people might behave. And uh, why do you think so they're Irish, don't they? Well, it's just a very different system. It's just,
2: I know, like, the Harvey Weinstein thing that everybody's talking about, and is it a win or is it not a win? One of the, the reasons they stated why he didn't get found guilty on two of the women's stories was because the jury felt their story wasn't coherent. And not only that, that they stayed in touch with Harvey after he had allegedly abused mm. him. Now, anybody who understands victim behaviour would totally understand why they stayed in connection with this professional man. I think if the jury had been given access to somebody to explain how or why that could happen, then that verdict might have been very different.
3: Yeah, and you know, after the Belfast trial that we all yeah. were horrified to carry on, a huge report was produced by um, Judge Gillen. he was a retired judge, and one of his recommendations is that in crimes of sexual violence that The judge would actually educate the jury about the myths about rape and sexual violence, about uh, trauma and so on. Come in or not, I don't know. There is a big review going on of trial of sexual offences here in the Republic and we hope it will be out before the summer, it's well overdue at this stage. Tom O'Malley from the University of Galway is doing it but I would really hope he'd make that sort of recommendation. But the other thing is, judges barristers. Oh, yeah, no. Everybody needs training about sexual yeah. Anybody,
2: hour. any judge, barrister, lawyer, any of that organisation ever came mm-hmm. into
3: one of four and said, we could really do all well educating our staff on this. No, that has never happened. The judges have a new judicial council uh, that is to provide training. They may well be having training privately, I don't know, yeah. but we certainly have never been asked to provide training right. um, and we would be very happy to do it. And you
2: would have a very unique point of view and the fact that not only do you deal with victims, you deal with perpetrators. So it would make sense why they would come and ask for that
3: kind of information. And also for judges to listen to people who have been through the courts and to hear because I mean most of our clients who end up going through a trial will tell us that they felt humiliated, traumatised their character torn apart you know it's a really really difficult thing and that's why people absolutely need the sort of support our advocacy officers can give I mean anybody would be out of their minds to go into a criminal trial without professional support right. going through it and then not have a consistency in sentencing yeah in fairness I think sentencing consistency has improved certainly since I've been involved in this field and the Supreme Court recently laid down guidelines for you know the type of sentence that would be appropriate for different types yeah. of sexual offences. So, in in the central criminal court, sentencing is fairly consistent, maybe less so in the circuit court. Right, but there um, seems to be a
0: a couple of judges, or at least one in particular, everybody is signing petitions against and everything because of the sentences that he's handing down to... uh, And the non-sentences.
2: Yes. And to be uneducated and sit on a jury to try and decide somebody's life is just ridiculous.
3: Yeah, and I suppose juries bring in all their stereotypes and baggage and myths and everything about sexual violence but but also I suppose for the first time in that sexual offences act in 2017 a definition of consent was written into Irish law which is the very first time so that's a very positive move too and it would include that if you're pissed you're not capable of giving consent so the fact you're pissed is actually irrelevant what services
1: do one and four,
3: bite. And to whom? Okay, so we've talked about the Advocacy Service. So that be for people who want to get engaged in the criminal justice system or with child protection services. Do they services. have to be part of one and four? No, no, no. People just, loads of our clients just come and use the Advocacy Service. That service is free. There's no waiting list. You will be attended right. to immediately. And uh, lot of say therapists out there in private practice or indeed other organisations will refer people to the Advocacy Service. So you don't have to be attending counselling year at all. Right. Our counselling service then, and we'd work with about 200 people every year in that service. Basically, if you ring up and you say that sexually abused, you'd like to engage in counselling, we really try to see somebody for a first meeting within three weeks, although that's not always possible. That's really just to have a conversation to see what the person needs, is this the right place for them. Like there would be some situation, say if somebody's in a wild addiction, we might be referring them to addiction services before they come here. Have you a waiting list? That's the problem. Once you've had that meeting, you could then be on a waiting list and it's often up to six months. Is January there any services any. in the interim? There isn't really. We just, we're okay. so under-resourced, you know. Have you and got that, a
0: figure on your uh, waiting list?
3: Our waiting list at the moment is at about 40 or thereabouts, which doesn't sound huge uh, because our waiting list was closed at the end of last year. We only opened it after Christmas. So it's just building up again.
0: And also, on the basis that people tend to reach out in a crisis. Exactly. You don't know if, if you've lost your shot with helping
3: them because they might not return. Well, I'll tell you, when we meet somebody for that first meeting, if they're really in crisis, if they're suicidal, for example, we will fast-track them in, okay. find some way but to see them. But then it's awful having to say sorry yeah, you're going yeah. to wait. And it's not just us. All the other yeah. support services, the Rape Crisis Centre, everybody yeah. has a waiting list. So what happens then when you decide we have to close down the wait list? So
1: I ring you, What can you do for me? There's no space. To we'll have a conversation
3: there. on the phone and we'll refer you to give you the number for the National Helpline so that that's you can it. talk to a telephone counsellor. It's absolutely awful. I mean it's it's scary because we know of at least four people who've taken their own lives while they were on our waiting list before we ever I got sure to see them. Now that's gone back over the last about seven years. I know. But Even so when the waiting list is closed, we have no idea. Of what's happening. Of what's happening. So it is an absolute disgrace, and that after all these years, the services like one in 4, like the Railcraft Centre, the National Counselling Service, how everybody's got away, you know, and more and more people are coming forward, which is brilliant, but it's a real struggle to provide services. Moving on, when you do actually finally get allocated a therapist, a lot of the people who come here will be here for quite a long time, you probably, probably know say, that, yeah. you know, a 10 session model or anything like that just doesn't yeah. work. so. Typically, people would be here for around two years, two and a half years, three years, maybe. Some people, after a period of time in individual therapy, will maybe go into group. That's not for everybody. That's you know, up to the up to the person. You know, it is a, not an easy journey, but we have a very low dropout rate, which is marvellous. And we have very experienced therapists, um, which you need, working with such a complex issue. And that people's lives really do change, you know, they really do change.
2: Is your building, is your staffing numbers, is it, is it only money or is it the whole lot? Well, it's money
3: to, to employ more staff. Right. Our building, we're bursting out of the seams. We're here yeah. in Hollis Street now for nearly 20 years. So, happily, um, Tusla and the agency have both given us a grant this year to help us move. So, right. we're currently actually looking for another building. Right. It's not easy though to find, not everybody wants to have one and four in their building. Which? It needs to be central because people travel from all over the yes. country. And do you feel uh,
0: there's a stigma attached because you help perpetrators as well as Well, we'd have to be careful.
3: I mean, we can't have a building beside a school or, you know, obviously, or in a residential area. But other Um, than those
0: practical issues where you're not putting anybody in danger, do you find uh, the way the organisation is perceived, do you feel that's impacted negatively in any way?
3: I don't think so you know when we started working with offenders and the only reason we do that is our clients started saying well what about my brother, what about my father, yeah. they're never going to be convicted because I'm not going to make a complaint to the guards. But they What's need there help. for them? What about the other children in the family? So we start working with the offenders. Nowadays we work with about 50 offenders every year and okay, um, it's yeah. a two-year program. Again some people think too good for them it is a tough it is a very very Absolutely. tough problem and in truth to actually really really realise the harm you've caused somebody else and take responsibility for that is really really yeah. difficult yeah, <laughs> most of those guys come in because they've been caught at yeah. <laughs> it's not or hard, indeed right? the police of the have raided and found stuff on their laptops Why? or whatever and when they come in they usually really are they have a very distorted way of thinking about what yes. they've done yeah. so it's really about holding their nose to the grindstone and... Would you have any
0: figures in your head of how many offenders you've kind of helped
3: or worked with to date? We've We've worked with about 240.
0: And do you have any stats on yeah we know about four or? of
3: those offenders have re-offended that we know of of course because that's, you know, so no, that's, that's not a bad statistic no it's a good statistic absolutely so when they come in it's a two-year program and then they go into aftercare for another two to three years the aftercare they'll just come in maybe once every two months to a group and that's really just maintenance, min- program, maintenance like. yeah i mean we also as soon as the offender comes in here we notify the guards we notify TUSLA and they would be involved too, so there would be child protection plans put in place yeah. to make sure everybody's safe. We do some restorative justice here. Once or twice we've done it with offenders and their victim, but that's at the request of the, of the, of the victim, right. the survivor. What we have done a lot of work with is the families, because when we work with offenders' families, the dynamic that's going on in that family that allowed the abuse to happen is very complex. Very typically, most of the family will actually with the abuser, quite yeah. unconscious, and blame the victim, stigmatise the victim. So we do run a support group for the families of the offenders, as well as a different support group for the families of the survivors. But huge work has to be done with those families to make them see. Absolutely, it was not the child who was adult. Yeah, it was the offender. It's a bit like an alcoholic family where Absolutely. everything works to support yeah, the yeah. alcoholic. And, and their, their thinking
0: has been altered in a similar way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and also they're all paying the cost of that crime anyway Absolutely. because the entire the stigma goes right across the family and it's for life. Yeah, it's, It doesn't go away. It's not yeah. temporary. And there's nowhere to turn. Yeah. Like, really, the families have to be involved, just as with the therapy, because we found a significant impact on our relationships when we began. But they didn't include partners. And, in fact, they almost reassured you at the get-go that you were 99% sure to lose your relationships. Oh, my God.
1: In fairness, it was new. The Rape Crisis Centre at that time dealt with rape and they didn't know what to do. And they showed you a list of likely
0: uh, traits to look at, you know, that might be present if you're a victim. And also the reassurance that very few relationships make it through this. So you were absolutely terrified from the get-go.
1: But we were also, it was also instilled in you, like, if you really, really looked after yourself, you'd take this trip. You would do this journey so you'd be going and saying well if he does fuck him if he's gone he's gone like and that was the attitude and you that was another form of brainwashing though yeah. because you felt if you didn't do that it was because you didn't feel you were worth it
3: and can i ask you did your marriage
0: just break up um, yeah mine did yeah joyce's did my i wife, don't know how mine made it through because i remember going home to my husband at the early days and saying mm-hmm. They showed us a list of things to look out for. And I said, you had more of them than I did. And he said, <laughs> no, I, was only th- I really like, I'm like an open book. And I'm just ha- literally having a conversation. When he flipped his lid, don't try and throw all that psychobabble at me just because you're getting therapy. Don't and I said, no, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, no, oh, we had more of So, yeah, our relationship suffered tremendously as a result of that. But I don't know, somehow, I made it through. Because I'm brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> or, <laughs> or, or naive.
2: It would be very difficult for anybody to go through that process, especially if their partner is not getting any support. Yeah, like, and
1: also, like, you do still have that huge sense, regardless of the mess inside, you have a huge sense that you want to belong. So you, you seek out some other fucked up person. And it how could it last? Because you're so sick, and they're sick. If they're not brought in and
0: told, this is how your partner has been impacted, these are the likely outcomes, and how it's gonna impact your relationship, straight away, sex is gonna be an issue.
3: issue. I think most people, once, especially once they begin to really explore in a detailed way, that sex for a while, um, and yeah. now happily, most people do regain their strong, positive sense of sexuality. How many years um, is it?
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> We're still working on that. <laughs>
3: It's, I think most, a lot of relationships survive, but you're, you're dead right. They will change. Yes. You, the person in therapy changes.
1: No, but also, you know, when you think even if it's only about sex, and we know how
3: important sex is
1: to men, like, especially the men we were with, that they felt if the sex was right, everything else would fall into place. But if it wasn't right, it was taken very personal, and that's quite understandable. But we couldn't tell them that it wasn't
3: personal. So we were so yeah, and I mean that's where the therapist can help by having yes, a conversation right. with the person. And so, with
1: partner. that in mind,
0: what exactly work do you do with a family? Well,
3: with the partners, we would meet them. So most of the people that come in are partners or maybe parents of the adult survivors here. So we'll, we'll people will come in. We'll meet the family or the individual for one or two sessions, and then we'll encourage them to join one of the family groups mm-hmm. here, where they will be meeting people from other families who are going mm-hmm. through exactly the same awfulness, people find that really, really positive yeah. and helpful and in those groups we we'll discuss things like sexuality, all the other issues, the shame, the stigma, what the survivor needs. It's like, it's like an education for people as yeah. to you know, what's happened whatever and what we find at the end of it is people want more, a lot of the families have been in group here, continue to stay in contact out of here because they can talk openly about what yes. they're going through yeah. in a way they can. not very Maybe other people. So it's again. We'd love to do much more of that work, but we always have family groups going right through the year. So
0: so for a partner, he would have one or two sessions, and then he'd be referred to family. And to a family group. He has an option
1: of being
0: in the family. Iman yeah. wouldn't have gone to no family group, and I'd have been lucky to get Milan to a session. Yeah. but he probably would have come to the two sessions yeah and i mean
3: we can do work with a
0: couple as well i mean that, that so yes. that they can have a,
3: a conversation right but unfortunately we don't have the resources like and the partner doesn't
0: need to be you know heavily involved like, they just need to be brought in on it and informed and included yeah. if they have a particularly rough patch
1: then maybe you could ask to bring them in and, it oh, is okay. a good though because we wouldn't have that option yeah. another big issue for us was um walking in the door because, you
3: know, you may as well have a sign on you. I've been raped. Right. No, know. no, I get that. And I think people coming here would have the same feeling, although a lot of people wouldn't know what one in four means. So people still feel that. And I mean, the minute you walk through the door, you were saying, I have a problem with sexual abuse. Either it's happened to me or I'm yes. the mother or father of somebody's yeah. happened to. I should say, too, we have an offender day here when there wouldn't be any survivors in the building in case any of the survivors worry that they might be in the waiting room with an event. Yeah. They won't be. That never happens. Anymore. Yeah,
2: good. When you come in the front door downstairs, you're met with the receptionist. Do you know before you get here what therapist you're going to be seeing?
3: You would, yes, yeah. You have an appointment with Right. And That's if great. you come in
2: downstairs, is it the therapist that comes out and then brings
3: you up to the room? No, what happens is Anne-Marie, who's our lovely and very experienced receptionist, she will bring you up to the waiting room. And then the therapist will come and find you in the waiting room bring right. you to the
2: therapy That's room nice. And they, they
3: seem like nothing but they're, in oh, no, no, they're deal, yeah. a big deal. they're a big Oh no, in fairness, I mean Anne Marie and occasionally some of the other admin staff will be on reception, but they all know that this is all about the client. They want you know that it's so yeah. important that people have a warm welcome yeah that they can go to the waiting room that there's tea and coffee and biscuits there that you know they that they're comfortable
0: just a trivial little thing where do you get parking for this film
3: well that is a huge <laughs> problem i mean there is parking over in Merritt square there's parking down in venin street but it's very expensive. Right. Yeah. So you nearly always get parking in Marion Square, but it's like two seventeen hours something. Yeah. So that is a problem. Three sixty.
2: Yeah. Where do you envisage to move into? Well, well like I don't think we can here. afford
3: to stay around Marion Square. It's it's a lovely area to be in and, and it's lovely that clients if they come out and they're upset after a session can go over to the park and yes. sit down and have a walk yes. or whatever. I'd say we'd be going somewhere in Dublin 8, I mean, it'd be somewhere around Thomas Street, we'd be fine. Or over Dublin 7, somewhere around Smithfield.
0: So now, the nitty-gritty, the cast... You were saying it's yeah, on a no, sliding scale. It's on a sliding
3: scale. I'd say most clients come in here pay about 30 euros for a session. Right. Okay. But some people pay 5 euros and the full fee is 80 euros. So if somebody, some very wealthy people come in here they would be paying the 80 euros. For the offenders it's much more. They have to pay nearly 100 euros per group. But I mean we receive very little funding for that program so they have to pay. And how know. does
0: the exchange money take place? Uh, is it, it handed
3: to the therapist? It's usually done at the reception. Right. Be prior or after? After.
0: After. i prefer... I mean, a personal taste. I mean, say it, no so I feel, feel easier to do the start for. because afterwards it feels like if you've had a particularly rough session, you're falling apart. Introducing money into a fields, you wrong. paid somebody. To yeah, it feels people. like they only sat there and listened to me because I'm giving them this money. Or it's only an idea. Listen, we can have a look at that. Yeah. And so. who who decides when they're finished? You were saying a lot of people come here, two three years. Who decides
3: when it's it's, it, that would be agreed between the therapist and the client. Okay. I mean, clients tend to know when they're coming yeah. to the end, you know. Yeah. So that would be, you know, discussed. And as I said, some people, maybe after 18 months, two years, will go into group. And that's really powerful as well. And so there's groups running all the time here. Does um, anybody
2: come in initially and go straight
3: into a group? No, we don't put anybody into group or suggest they go into group until they have a fairly substantial piece of work done. Oh, but we do get referrals from therapists, say in private practice who are like, coming to that point with their clients who want to come into groups. Mm-hmm. So we would meet those clients and, you know, get, get a right. sense of who that people be. But the, they will like, already have been in therapy. So yeah, right. we do not put people into group unless they've had right, substantial We did try here a couple of years ago to have just sort of short introductory groups for people on the waiting mm-hmm. list, support groups really, yes. until they're But actually we found people really didn't want to go into group. Well,
0: it is an option and it's an option would have... Helped me. Well, I mean, it's something we could
3: think about. We're always trying to think about ways yeah. to do it because it's just to, to
0: have something in place that even if they don't take it up, they know it's there. Mm.
2: Now I'm assuming those groups are facilitated by by two therapists, yeah. 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 Because you know, a lot of people were are thinking about setting it up like the AA support outside, and I personally think with this particular thing, you cannot do that without having trained professionals in a room. They're offering something different, and it's not.
1: Council. It's a bit like yeah. an AA meeting where you go, we trash out, this all the things that are going on at the moment. So we're not talking about my own shit. My fears always with AA, like I think AA is a great thing and all, but I had a partner in AA for a long time and I just felt they actually supported each other to say stick. You know, no one was ever really challenged. They supported each other. He had a particular frame mind that fucked him up big time, but he was supported to stay in that frame mind. Because they were all the same. Whereas if there was a professional there, he could have been challenged and maybe, you know, helped. But he felt because he had a sponsor and he could go and spill out all his crap. And he became a sponsor to somebody. I just seen danger signs there.
3: I'm just thinking of somebody who... who Everybody said you need to go to therapy, you need to go to counselling. What is it? The first thing I'd say is there's an awful lot of people out there who never go near a therapist and who... I think because maybe some good things happened in their life, were able to, to live you know a reasonably satisfied, content life. Maybe they met a really special partner. Maybe you know whatever. Yeah. But obviously, okay. I'm a therapist, so I do think everybody. I think the world is I, I therapy, going to therapy. Yeah. So what is therapy? Look, it really it's just a chance to allow to have a space, a private space, where. You can get to know your therapist where you form a very deep relationship if it's working and gradually you allow that person to get to know you really, really well. So all the things you hate about yourself, as well as everything you like about yourself and you can just talk through everything that's happened to you and gradually, like you've just been saying, by doing that it's like you begin to realize this is not my fault, there was nothing wrong with me, there is nothing wrong with me. Yeah, maybe I've picked up all sorts of ways of being in the world to try and cope with the pain, but. I have other options now, and by working through those, people really do go on to live lives that isn't contaminated all the time by the sexual abuse. But
0: the word therapy seems to intimidate some people, I think.
1: You know? Well, it also implies there's something wrong with you. Yeah. That's you know, an American thing, you know. You go and find yourself mm-hmm. and all that crap, but it does imply there's something wrong with you, and you already believed there's something wrong. Do, with Do yourself. you still think that's the case?
3: Because please, just about everybody I know is in therapy, regardless of what. Yeah. yeah. But, but you're probably, probably in your <laughs> Well, that's true. That's probably yeah. true. Yeah. You only working with offenders who haven't been? No, about half our offenders will go to prison. Okay. Yeah. Right. Especially the, the internet offenders. And I mean, people tend to treat internet offenders less seriously. Every one of those images of child sexual abuse is a crime point. Do you I think, think
1: um, treatment for sex offenders that end up in prison should be mandatory?
3: Look, uh, all the research would sort of show, not sort of, it does show that you can't force people into those programmes. I mean, people will turn up and go into the group, but will they really do the work? I don't think. Should well, no, kind of, they
1: not be. Should it not be mandatory that they sit in a circle, say, where somebody highlights the impacts on victims? That they don't have to participate but to hear it sometimes? I don't never think know that would sink in.
3: People. What I do think is to encourage people to get into treatment in prison is that there should be some Advantage attached that, that the release date would be earlier or something like that. I
2: don't believe you can change behavior Unless you know what your behavior is and mm-hmm. where it came from why you do it and then what damage it's doing mm-hmm. to you And to somebody
3: yeah. but you. another question is there are a lot of people in prison who want to get into a program and they can't get um, in yeah. because again the offender treatment program in prisons is very under-resourced. Yes yeah. you know? um, That's so, a better life. one. Yeah I'm assuming your funding has been cut, like everybody else's. Well, it was cut back in two thousand and nine, in the middle of the crash. I mean, we lost about forty percent of our funding. Right. That was just when the Ryan report came out. So that year, the numbers trebled. Like they went up, there was about sixteen hundred people through here this year. It was Jesus. that year. It was absolutely mad. Now those numbers have dropped back down to about eight hundred. Um. So has it been reimbursed now? Is no, it? not not yes, to the no. same extent. No. no, but there has been no funding cut since twenty fourteen. Okay. So, but there hasn't been no increase either. No, about fifty percent of our funding comes from the HSE. about another ten uh, percent comes from TUSLA. About another ten percent comes from the Department of Justice. Uh, is that up to seventy percent? Or thereabouts? And then the rest is fundraising the fees the client give us, donations, so So we have to raise about 400,000 through fundraising, donations, fees. It costs about 1.1 million euros to run one in four a year. And that's
2: not running at the
3: capacity it should be running. Mm -hmm. Exactly. If you you could do
1: exactly what you want to do, you know what the needs are now and you know what has to be done. If you were
3: to meet those needs and do your thing, what would you need? We need a bigger building. We need, like we have seven therapists, therapists here. If we had 12, mm. that would be brilliant. I also think some of the services we provide, like the advocacy service and the work with the offenders, that's not happening anywhere else. I mean, the rape crisis centres around the country are doing yeah. very good counseling work. I would love if we could open a satellite in somewhere like Limerick or Galway. Like some of those offenders are coming up from West Kerry and from Sligo yeah. and Donegal and everywhere, because there's nowhere. So if we had a place, Somewhere down the west, I think that would mean that a lot more offenders could get the treatment and stop abusing children, please.
2: We would like to thank May for taking part in today's podcast. Her open and honest approach to assisting victims of abuse to gain access to supports that they so badly need is often overlooked. Her willingness to challenge the current government bodies, along with navigating the maze of legal procedures, to ensure that clients' needs are placed front and centre at all times, gives us hope for a better future. So thanks Maeve, we really appreciate all you do. Keep up the great work. Thank you
1: for listening. Hopefully some of the information we've shared will resonate with you and bring you to a place where you can have compassion for yourself. Please know that no matter how you feel or how you respond to the abuse, it was normal. We're hopeful and optimistic that those in a position of power to bring about change will be moved into action so we can finally eradicate childhood sexual abuse. So please spread the word and share the information.
0: The decision to heal from childhood sexual abuse places you on the most important journey of your life. You're in charge of this journey, only you know what works for you and what doesn't. It takes as long as it takes because there's no rushing it and there's no faking it. You have to feel it. And just as the ripple of pain that you're in goes out and impacts all of those around you, so does the healing. And the more you heal, the more everyone around you benefits from your healing. You've been listening to the Kavanagh Sisters podcast. You can contact us through Facebook, Twitter and Instagram or email the Sisters at gmail.com.